Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our Bibles in hand and open to Luke's Gospel. We're in chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. The title of today's message is Heavenly Happiness or Heaven's Happiness. We've come to a chapter in the Gospel of Luke that contains perhaps one of the most familiar stories, not only in the Bible, but in all of world literature. It's the story of the prodigal son. What many people forget about the story of the prodigal son is it's also a parable, not just a parable. It's the third in a trilogy of parables that Jesus gave here in Luke 15. And all of these parables attempt to answer the same question. The question is, what makes heaven happy? And I think we'll save the story of the prodigal son for next Sunday and deal with the first two parables in the trilogy this morning. And those are the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. Now, in the previous chapter, chapter 14, Jesus interacted with two groups of people in Israel, the Pharisees and what is known as the multitudes, the hoi polloi we saw last week, the masses. And individuals in each of these groups were in danger of missing heaven for two very different reasons. The Pharisees, the intellectuals, the up and in crowd, were in danger of missing heaven because by and large they rejected God's invitation to his heavenly banquet because it came through his son and they rejected Jesus. And they failed to contemplate the consequences of rejecting Jesus. And then the multitudes were in danger of missing heaven because they quickly accepted God's invitation through Jesus without ever counting the cost of discipleship. And so Jesus was indeed taking his father's invitation to all. He ate lunch in the homes of aristocratic legalists like the Pharisees. He also rubbed shoulders out in the highways and hedges of life with those on society's periphery, those called here publicans and sinners. And so let's read about that interaction this morning in our text. Luke chapter 15, I'll read verses 1 through 10. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way... There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. And in the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading and hearing of His Word. Now once again in chapter 15 we find Jesus interacting with these two extremes of society's pendulum. On one hand you had the law keepers, the students and keepers of the law known as the Pharisees. And on the other side of the 
pendulum, you had the lawbreakers, or more ac accurately, the law ignorers, referenced here as publicans or tax collectors and sinners. And most often in the New Testament, where people are designated as sinners, it speaks of sexual immorality, and likely there were prostitutes in this crowd. And as we saw last week, few of the up and in received Christ and His invitation. And we've seen before that heaven will be populated primarily from what the Pharisees would see as a class of people beneath them. But, but there was one particular practice that Jesus has as it related with this lower class of people that really got under the skin of the Pharisees. That, that practice is spoken of here in verse 1 of chapter 15. It says, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near Him to listen to Him. And I take this, these publicans, which were outcasts of society, they were viewed as traitors to their own people. And these sexual immoral people had heard Christ's invitation to come unto Him. But they had also heard, apparently, His warning to count the cost before accepting the invitation. And still they come. And I take it with genuine repentance. Now you remember that the high cost of discipleship is none other than unconditional and total surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. A person cannot come to the banquet without an invitation. They have to hear the gospel message. They can't come to the banquet without being clean. That is, they have to be cleansed of their sin by the blood of Jesus. And they have to be dressed appropriately. They have to have His imputed righteousness. But they also must forsake all the things that they had been filling themselves with before so that they can truly enjoy God's feast. Remember the Pharisees made excuses why they couldn't come. They had bought a piece of property or they had five team of oxen they had to prove or they had gotten married. That is they had filled their lives with things other than Christ and they had no room left. It has always been the case that to follow Christ is not a license to sin. But rather it is regeneration. It's a transformation. We don't teach here cheap grace. Jesus called everyone to holiness. In fact, <clears throat> the woman that was caught in adultery that was brought before Jesus, Jesus forgave her, but then He said to her, go and sin no more. But here is the practice of Jesus that infuriated the Pharisees. He received these sinners that came to Him in genuine repentance. He associated with them. He even fellowshiped and ate meals with them. And, and here is a problem. But it's not a problem as far as Jesus is concerned. It's a problem with the Pharisees. Their problem is seen in verse 2. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Their problem they had with Jesus is not that Jesus preached repentance to sinners. They did that. They were all for telling sinners they were going to hell. The problem is that when they repented, He received them. That is, He did not keep them at arm's length. He did not rebuff them. He welcomed them. He ate with them. And goodness sakes, He valued them. Because in the minds of the Pharisees, sinners were to be shamed and shunned, lest they pollute others with their sinfulness. But as always, the problem was not with Jesus. It was with the Pharisees. Now remember this. The Pharisees had a zeal for God. They would even say they loved God. Their real problem was they did not know God, though they thought they did. Here's how I know that they did not know God. Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. In Matthew chapter 15, we come to verse 7, and 
Jesus is speaking again to these Pharisees in another episode. And he references someone in the Old Testament that the Pharisees would have been very familiar with, and that is the prophet Isaiah. And in Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 7, this is what Jesus said to the Pharisees. He said, you hypocrites. Now that was Jesus' favorite designation for the Pharisees. The word hypocrite means two-faced, a play actor, one who's pretending to be something he's not. He says, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching the doctrines, the precepts of men. Now here's how I know that the Pharisees didn't know God. Their heart was far from His. That is, they didn't love the things that He loved. They didn't take joy in the things that gives God joy. They were absolutely wrong about what they thought made heaven happy. And if you want to encapsulate their real problem, here it is in a nutshell. The problem of the Pharisees is the same problem of all legalists, no matter what ism they ascribe to in every epoch of history, it's this. Legalists believe that what makes heaven happy is when sinners don't sin. Right? Legalists think what makes God happy is when sinners don't sin. And so they make out these long lists of do's and don'ts. And when you can hold your breath long enough not to do those things for a while, they think that's what makes God happy. We call that reformation. But here's the truth. What really makes heaven happy is not when sinners don't sin. It's, what, it's when what is lost is found. That's what makes heaven happy. It's the difference between reformation and regeneration. And to illustrate this difference, Jesus gives three consecutive parables here in chapter 15. It's the parable of the lost sheep, parable of a lost coin, and then finally a parable of a lost son. And you'll notice there is a progression of value from an animal to money to a human being. Although all of these three parables have the same basic meaning and they all have the same pattern. And so let's, let's look at the first two parables this morning and then we'll look at the pattern. Begin in verse 3. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays his on it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me. For I found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now here is the parable of the lost sheep. Now it probably doesn't surprise you to hear Jesus telling a story about sheep. After all, the imagery and metaphor of sheep and shepherding are found many places in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Probably the most famous is a psalm that you likely memorized as a child, the 23rd Psalm. In, in which King David, late in life, went back to his hometown of Bethlehem and he took pen in hand and he nostalgically wrote about his own experience as a shepherd boy and how he understood now that God had been watching over his life as a good shepherd. But in John chapter 10, we also find another wonderful imagery of sheep and shepherding, this time out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said to his disciples, to them, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, he is 
not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. So when Jesus describes his own relationship to the church, he does so as a good shepherd, one who's looking out for the best interest of the sheep. That is, the sheep are his highest priority. And so here's the story. A man has 100 sheep he's looking out for, and he's counting them. He can only come up with 99. I'm sure he counts several more times, and every time he comes up with 99, one sheep is gone, and he discovers which one it is. And he leaves the 99. Now, a lot of people have been bothered by that. What's going to happen to the 99? Well, don't worry about that. Remember that this is a metaphor, a parable. And so if we, we try to dissect, we're bound to find somewhere that it that falls apart. But the main point is this. He loved each of them so much that he was willing to sacrifice anything to find the one who was lost. Now, if it really bothers you, you'll, you'll find that throughout the scriptures that shepherds almost never worked alone. In fact, when the announcement came that Jesus was to be born, there were shepherds, weren't they? Plural. And so likely he would leave the, shepherd, the, the sheep in charge of other shepherds in safekeeping. We know that. And then he went looking for the one who was lost. But he is on a mission. He, he, he's going to do anything and everything to find the lost sheep. And so when he learns that the sheep is lost, he leaves the others in safekeeping and he pursues the ones that is lost until he finds him. And when he does find him, he picks him up. And what they would do in those days, they would bind the four legs around his neck. He would carry him on his own shoulders and bear him all the way home. And when he got home, he didn't go back to the pasture first. He went to the village and knocked on all of his friends' doors and said, look what I found. My sheep, which was lost, is now found. Come rejoice and celebrate with me. That's the pair of the lost sheep. Very simple story. But then he gives a second parable. It's the parable of the lost coin. Look at verse 8. He says, Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. And in the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Another very simple story with the same elements. This woman has 10 coins and discovers that one is missing. Likely this is her dowry that she was given on her wedding day. It had some and great monetary value, but really the sentimental value was worth more. This would be similar to losing your, your wedding ring. And so what does she do? She lights a lamp. There were not a lot of windows in houses, and even in the daytime it would have been dark. So she lights a lamp and she, they would have dirt floors and she would start sweeping in one corner and make her way all the way across the house until she had covered every square inch. She would not stop until she had found what had been lost. And when she finds it, she calls out to her friends to come celebrate and rejoice with her. This is the pattern that we see repeated in all three of these parables. Something valuable is lost in the case of the first two parables, what is valuable is a sheep. If you're a shepherd, 
and you lose one sheep, it would have been a great disgrace and shame for you. That is your one job, is to protect and make sure no harm comes to that sheep. And if you were a wife and you lost a portion of which represented your highest relationship in marriage, it would have been a great shame to you. And so something valuable has been lost to the owner. And because it is so valuable, it is sought diligently by the owner until it's found. And when it is found, it is returned to its rightful place. And once it has been returned to its rightful place, there is a great celebration. These parables describe nothing more or less than a rescue mission. The scripture says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Some of you may find it hard to relate to being a shepherd. I doubt anyone here is a shepherd by trade. And, and we don't have coins that we wear as necklaces, as, as dowries anymore. I was trying to think this week of something similar in our own culture. And it was not very long before I remembered something that happened less than two years ago. That when it happened, I followed very, very closely. Something about it just piqued my interest. And, and you may remember as well. In the summer of 2018, in late June, the story came down that there was a team of uh, junior high soccer players in the northern province of Thailand who after practice one day were taken by their 25-year-old assistant coach to explore a local cave. It was at the end of the dry season. It's something they had done many times before. But while they were in the bowels of that cave, about 2.5 miles deep, in fact, unexpectedly, a rainstorm came. And it filled those caverns and those crevices with water, and they were cut off. No one heard them for, for hours. And one of the moms, when the son did not come home, called the, the head coach, and he had left practice to go home, and he knew where they were headed. And he went, and he found those bicycles lined up right at the entrance of that cave, and he, he knew something terrible had happened. And he called the local authorities, and they didn't know whether the boys were alive or dead, and, and they began to call in experts. And before you knew it, 10,000 people from dozens of countries all over the world had converged on that little town in the northernmost province of Thailand, and some of the most skilled divers in the world began to make their way deep into the narrow passages underwater, Zero visibility, the water was like coal. Dangerous as you could possibly be. Ten days later, on July the 2nd, John Valantham and Rick Stanton, two British divers, popped up in one of the uh, areas that had drained a little bit, turned on a spotlight and discovered every one of those young boys and their coach alive and well and perched up on a little rock face on the edge of that uh, cave wall. And the first question they ask is, how long have we been here? And he said, 10 days. And he says, we're going back, we're gonna get help, but we're going to rescue you. And that's when the real work started. Now that they knew they were alive, how in the world were they gonna get these boys back home? Almost none of them could swim, let alone dive. And so they, put forth about four scenarios. One is we can pump the water out, they can walk out on dry land. And yet they saw the forecast was rain for the next several days, that wouldn't work. They thought maybe we'll send experts who will teach the boys how to swim and then how to dive. 
And they knew that wouldn't work. They said, maybe we can drill a shaft down from the top and take them out that way, but the limestone crumbled. It wasn't going to work. And so finally, the news media said, well, maybe they'll just keep taking them food and oxygen and wait until the dry season, which was four months away. They kept it very quiet from the media, but the decision was made of what they would do, and here's what they did. They didn't teach them how to swim. They didn't drill a shaft. They didn't wait till the dry season. Pumping out the water was futile. So they took a doctor, an anesthetist, and he knocked them all out, made them unconscious, rendered them immovable. They wrapped them up like a package. They put handles on their front and back, put an oxygen mask on each one, and they carried them out. Just like that shepherd bound up that sheep around his shoulders and he took him out. And you know it took them three days, but when they got the last one out alive, there was a celebration around the world. Do you remember? That's the closest thing to these parables that, that I can remember. But Jesus is not talking here about sheep. He's not talking about money. He's not even talking about soccer teams. He's talking about lost souls. And Jesus came on a rescue mission. And unlike these divers who were unsure whether this plan would work, there was no possibility that Jesus would not, that there was no possibility that Jesus would fail to accomplish what he came to do. Luke chapter 19 verse 10 says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. He cannot and he will not fail. John chapter 6, Jesus said of his own mission, he says, This is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose none, but will raise them up on the last day. Paul Tripp is one of my favorite authors, and he said of this truth, Jesus did not purchase our savability on the cross. Instead, he took names to the cross. We were lost. Jesus pursued us. He wasn't satisfied by just finding any old sheep. He went after his sheep. And when he found us, he returned us. And the result is that heaven rejoices. Look at verses 6 and 7 in Luke chapter 15. Speaking of that shepherd who left all to find the one. And when he comes home. He calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Remember the Pharisees thought what made heaven rejoice is when sinners stop sinning. But what makes heaven rejoice is when what is lost is found. Again, the parable of the lost coin, verse 9. When she has found that lost coin, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have, lost, I have found the coin which I lost. And in the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Friends, this is the heart of God to save sinners. This is what makes heaven happy because this is what gives him glory. Now, those seems like obvious truths. What, what application could it have to First Baptist Church of Keller? I think 
some very clear applications. As I study the Bible and as I often think about the purpose of the local church, I think there are three categories, three reasons why the Lord leaves us here on earth. And number one is to worship Him, right? That's why we stress worship here. And that's why we're so glad to have Brother Matt leading us as our worship leader and so many here who serve faithfully in that ministry. And, you know, I believe we do that pretty well. We aim at, at least, honoring Christ and putting Him front and center in all things. Now, we all are human and we, we all have to fight that urge to be in the spotlight. But I think when you come to, to worship here, you know who it's about. It's about Jesus. May that always be the case. It's biblically based, Christ-centered worship. But another purpose of the church is, is to do ministry. That is to nurture Christians, to help them, as Paul says, grow to maturity, to adulthood. So a person is, is born again. They're an infant Christian. We want to see them make progress in sanctification through every area of life, and we want to see every member grow to maturity, and, and that is happening when we are ministering, when we're serving one another with our gifts. And again, as, as I look at our church, I, I think we're doing that pretty well, although there's always room for improvement. I, I'm amazed when I see how well you minister and you, you love one another. But there's a third area of life in the church and reason for our existence, and that is evangelism. Now, the first two, we're going to be able to do much more effectively in heaven, right? We're all going to worship in heaven, and we're not going to be distracted by the things of this life, and there's not going to be the presence of sin. We're all going to be ministered to perfectly because Christ is our good shepherd there. But, but something that we'll do here that we won't do in heaven is evangelism. That is to take this good news gospel message to a lost and dying world. And, and one of the things that burdens me is I know our congrega congregation needs a lot of work in this area. And I know that because their pastor needs a lot of work in this area. It's something we've been praying on for several years and, and working at and asking the Lord to help us. And as I think about evangelism, outreach to a lost and dying world, what motivates us to do that? As I talk to many of you, the same answers seem to come back. One is simple obedience. Because you know the word of God, you know that Acts 1-8 is that we shall be witnesses. You know the great commission of Matthew 28, go and make disciples. And so out of simple obedience, you want to honor your master by telling the good news because you know that's what Jesus wants you to do. That's a good reason to do evangelism. And some of you are motivated by compassion. You work with lost people. Your neighbors are lost. You drive by them every day at work. You sit by them at the ball game. And, and you understand that every person has an eternal soul that will spend eternity either in heaven in the presence of God or in hell being eternally punished. And that moves you and you're emotional about that. And, and you say with the Apostle Paul, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they would be saved. And that is a good motivator for evangelism. But, but those first two things are hit and miss, aren't they? If we're simply motivated by evangelism out of obedience, there are days when we're more obedient than others, would you admit? And if we're simply motivated by 
compassion or emotion, that is also hit and miss because our emotions sometimes are hit and miss. Let let me offer a third motivator for evangelism that I think is more consistent than the other two, and that is to be motivated to do evangelism because we know it makes God happy. Makes Him happy. Remember, what these three parables aim to answer is the question, what makes heaven happy? And what makes heaven happy is not when a person stops sinning, but what, when what is lost is found. See if I can illustrate this to you. Most of you know that uh, we have four children. Our oldest daughter, Emma Kate, is a child who has many special needs. She can't talk, she can't read, she can't really watch television. Her life in many ways is living the same day over and over and over. And for many years, she's 13 now, her life was made up primarily of going from one therapy to the next, one doctor to the next, one specialist to the next. And all of those doctors and all those therapies had one thing in common. They didn't work. Until we tried something called equine therapy, which is basically just letting her ride a horse. And here's the thing about equine therapy. It is inconvenient. Our, our yard is one-tenth of an acre. We're not allowed to have animals in our neighborhood. And so we have to get in the car and drive 30 minutes one way after picking her up at school. And then we have to wait our turn. And she rides for an hour. And then we take her back to school. It's very inconvenient. In fact, it's very expensive, to be honest with you. But the Lord's graciously provided those means. Um, It's inconvenient, it's expensive, and the truth is we have seen almost no results from it. She she doesn't talk, she didn't before. She can't read or write, she can't do mathematics. You know, it kind of reminds me a lot of evangelism. It's inconvenient, it's expensive, and we can go for years and not see any results. But we for years have taken Imicate to horse therapy not because it worked, not because it was convenient, not because it was uh, inexpensive. We did it and we continue to do it for one plain and simple reason. You know what it is? It makes her happy. And when you love somebody, you do things because it makes them happy. And the, the Pharisees' primary problem was that they did not know or love God because although they thought they did. But Jesus says, you honor me with your lips. You say you love me, but your heart is far from me. You don't love making me happy. You don't even get happy about the things that make me happy. And so, look, I'm not making imitate out to be God in that metaphor. There's a vast difference. God has no special needs. He has no needs of any kind. He's perfect in every way. He, he has absolute knowledge. He has limitless power. But isn't it amazing, those two groups of people, those two individuals, one who has very little knowledge and no power, and one who has all knowledge and all power, both have them have things that make them happy. And what makes God happy is when you share your faith with a lost person because that's the means that he uses to open their blind eyes 
And then the Holy Spirit stepped in, steps in and convicts them of sin and judgment and righteousness. They are born again when he breathes spiritual life into them and he grants them faith and repentance. And friends, if your heart is the heart of God, you're going to rejoice every time one soul comes to salvation. We tend to think in terms of groups, don't we? And we pray for a, a grand movement of God, and I pray for that too. I'd love to see throngs of people coming to saving faith. But what we've asked you to do recently is not to pray for throngs of people to come to saving faith, but for you to pray for one person. The question is, who's your one? Who's the one person in your life, in your sphere of influence, that you are bombarding the throne of heaven for? Day and night, Lord, save my friend. Lord, save my son, my daughter, my wife, my husband, my boss. And when you do that, you, you are recognizing that what makes heaven happy is not a list of rules that we can keep for a moment in time. Not even reformation and cleaning oneself up and rubbing off all the rough edges. What makes heaven happy is when what is lost is found. And what is lost today are human souls. And Jesus says he came to seek and save those who are lost. And we, as his disciples, get the great privilege of being a small part in heaven's rescue mission. Would you ask God today to help you to know what is your part? Ask him to save that one person that he would put on your heart. And then when they're saved, share the heart of God. Call all your friends that they might rejoice with you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. And Lord, Luke chapter 15 is well known. And sometimes things that are well known because of their familiarity, Lord, we, we miss the point. The very simple point of these parables is to answer the question, what makes you happy? And Father, we know that your heart is a heart of love and mercy. You're long-suffering and slow to anger, and you take no joy in the death of the wicked. And Father, you sent your son Jesus into the world to seek and save the lost. And the Puritans called him the hound of heaven, that he pursued those he intended to save until he caught them. And Father, I thank you that for many in this room, that is our testimony. We were rebels, we were sinful. Father, you pursued us. You would not rest until you found us. And when you found us, you didn't ask us to participate in our salvation. You bound us up, you put us around your shoulders. You took us home. And then when we were saved, there was joy in heaven. And Father, I pray that that scene would be repeated hundreds of times in this fellowship over the next few years. Lord, I pray that many would come to saving faith. But Lord, we know that all must come as individuals. You don't save groups, Lord. You save one by one. So Father, as valuable as we think property is, livestock, money, Father, we know the thing that you value most are your highest creation, people, because they have an eternal soul and they're made in your image. So Father, I pray we would value what you value. And when we value what you value, 
when we take joy in what you take joy in, when we love what you love, Lord, we will know that our heart is close to yours. And I pray that will be the order of the day for every believer in this church. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.